Hello and welcome to the next in our series of podcasts on Brexit. I'm Andrew Cannon, a partner in our global arbitration practice and co-head of our public international law practice here at Herbert Smith Freehills. With me today I have Hannah Ambrose, a senior associate specialising in arbitration and public international law work. Our team has done a considerable amount of work advising clients on the dispute resolution aspects relating to Brexit, including in relation to the resolution of private disputes. But in this podcast, we're going to consider questions concerning the governance structure of the UK-EU relationship itself. As we approach a critical time period in the negotiations, the issue of resolution of UK-EU disputes is increasingly significant, particularly in the event that there is a no deal. A transparent and credible method of resolving state-to-state disputes, including by reference to alternative dispute resolution mechanisms, will be imperative in supporting the stability and success of an ongoing EU-UK relationship. Moreover, it's undisputed that when the UK becomes a third country in March 2019, it's in the interests of all stakeholders across the UK and EU affected by the ongoing institutional relationship that there are clear mechanisms for enforcement of UK-EU obligations. So, perhaps the best place to start is to set the scene by considering where we are now in terms of the way disputes between the EU and UK will be resolved post-Brexit. Of course, we need to consider two scenarios. If there is a deal, in which case the starting point is to look at the dispute resolution provisions already proposed as forming part of the draft withdrawal agreement, Uh, but also if there's no deal, a scenario which the UK government has stated is unlikely, given the mutual interest of both parties in securing a negotiated outcome, uh, but which nevertheless cannot be completely ignored. At present, while there are elements of agreement between the EU and UK on how the withdrawal agreement will be enforced, there is no agreement on how disputes will be finally determined and by who, by which body. Uh, And of course, nothing is agreed until everything is agreed, so the degree of consensus reached so far concerning dispute resolution could also fall away if no agreement can be reached on the rest of the deal. A no-deal situation is also likely to increase the chance of disputes between the EU and UK, uh, given that we'd be talking, of course, about untangling over 40 years of economic and legal integration. And this raises interesting questions as to how these disputes will ultimately be resolved. Uh, The topic has not yet received much attention, save, of course, in the context of the discussions of the so-called Divorce Bill uh, and the implications of this uh, for a no-deal exit. So, Where are we at the moment? Well, first, looking at the situation in which a deal is reached. We have some indication of where things may come out, uh, but notably there is no in-principle agreement on a number of key issues, in particular as to what body or forum will interpret the withdrawal agreement uh, and will finally determine disputes between the UK and the EU under it. There is, as mentioned, um, a degree of consensus on certain aspects. It's agreed in principle that a joint committee should be established, co-chaired by the UK and EU, and which will be responsible for the implementation and application of the agreement. The joint committee would have the power to adopt decisions which would be binding on the Union and the United Kingdom, uh, that will have the same legal effect as this uh, withdrawal agreement. However, all decisions by the joint committee would be made by mutual consent. This is a fairly uncontroversial step. Joint committees are a regular feature of the EU's international agreements with third countries. Uh, Ultimately, whilst dialogue at joint committee level may resolve a dispute, uh, the committee is a political body rather than a dispute resolution body and acts on the basis of consensus. So as such, the UK or EU could effectively veto any proposal put forward by the other side. 
Both sides recognise there needs to be some way to resolve disputes which cannot be solved by mutual agreement within the Joint Committee. And this brings us to the rather more politically sensitive issue of the role for the Court of Justice of the European Union, or the CJEU. Well, yes, the EU has proposed that in the event that the dispute cannot be resolved at Joint Committee level, then the Joint Committee itself, or either one of the UK or the EU, could refer the dispute to the CJEU. Under the EU's proposal, a ruling from the CJEU would be binding, and non-compliance with that ruling may result in the CJEU issuing a lump sum or penalty payment, or even a possible suspension of aspects of the withdrawal agreement proportionate to the gravity of the breach. Now, the UK, of course, is reluctant to accept that the CJEU will have a role of ultimate decision-maker on the enforcement of an international treaty between the EU and a third country, as the UK would be. It would indeed be unusual from an international law perspective for the courts of one of the parties to an international agreement to be the final arbiter of disputes between the parties arising under that agreement. Indeed, it is a common feature of the EU's agreements with third countries that neither the CJEU nor the courts of the third country are given direct jurisdiction to resolve disputes between them. Now, the UK's proposal for state-to-state dispute resolution has to be seen in the context of the ongoing relationship that the UK envisages should exist between it and the EU. The UK's white paper, published in July 2018, commonly referred to as the Chequers Plan, describes a sort of association agreement between the EU and the UK which would form the institutional framework for the relationship, with a number of separate agreements, the majority falling within this institutional framework, each covering different elements of economic, security and cross-cutting cooperation. Now, Under the institutional framework, there would be a UK-EU governing body, and under that governing body, and answerable to it, the Joint Committee, which Andrew has already mentioned, would be responsible for the effective and efficient administration of the agreements. The Joint Committee, through what is described as regular and structured dialogue, would seek to prevent disputes arising, or otherwise play a role in resolving them. Now, The Joint Committee would endeavour to resolve this dispute for a predetermined period of time, and where it remains unresolved, the UK envisages some role for international arbitration, The arbitration panel would include members from both parties and in some instances might include specialist expertise, for example tribunal members with particular sectoral knowledge. The UK does however envisage a limited role for the CJEU. The Chequers Plan itself is predicated on the agreement of a common rulebook, in short harmonised standards for goods. Of course this overall premise has been rejected by the EU, most recently in Salzburg, but the proposal for dispute resolution remains an indication of the UK's thinking in this regard. The UK's proposal is that where the dispute between the EU and the UK relates to interpretation of rules within that agreed common rulebook, there should be the option for there to be a referral, either by mutual consent from the Joint Committee or from any arbitration panel, to the CJEU for an interpretation. The White Paper notes, and I quote, that the CJEU would only have a role in relation to the interpretation of those EU rules to which the UK had agreed to adhere as a matter of international law. So under this proposal, the CJEU would not itself resolve the dispute. Instead, the Joint Committee or the Arbitration Panel would have to resolve the dispute in a way that was consistent with the CJEU's interpretation. The inclusion of a preliminary reference procedure could be seen as a concession to the EU, albeit a limited one. It is theoretically possible that the UK could block a reference at joint committee level, as a preliminary reference would require mutual consent under the UK proposal. Further, the preliminary reference procedure is to be available in limited circumstances, where the rules in dispute form part of an agreed common rulebook. In such circumstances, 
Prohibiting divergence of interpretation from rules based on EU law is arguably in the interests of both sides, not just that of the EU. But in short, under the UK's proposal, the CJEU does not have direct jurisdiction over every aspect of the relationship between the EU and its member states, but recognises the significance of the CJEU's role in interpreting EU law. Of course, it remains to be seen whether this will be enough for the EU. And a particularly significant question is who will police the performance of the UK's financial obligations under the withdrawal agreement. This is one of the questions which is for the most part unresolved and falls in the gap between the EU's proposal of the CJEU being enforcer and the UK's position the dispute should ultimately be resolved otherwise than by the CJEU, including by international arbitration. The position of the EU is that the CJEU should have jurisdiction over financial settlement issues due to the fact that the origin of the financial settlement is the EU budget and the separate budgets of its organs, agencies and affected funds. It appears that in relation to limited elements of the financial settlement, the UK has agreed that the CJEU should have jurisdiction. The then Secretary of State for exiting the EU, David Davis, wrote to the EU Select Committee on 19th of April 2018, noting that for particular areas of the financial settlement, the UK has agreed that the CJEU will have jurisdiction as it does now, but only in relation to budget contributions made up to 2020 and to programmes the UK participated in during the 2014 to 2020 period, and not to the financial settlement as it relates to the period after implementation. However, again, there is as yet no agreed way forward. The EU can, as a matter of EU law, conclude international agreements which provide for the creation of a court or body which is responsible for the interpretation and enforcement of the provisions in that agreement and the decisions of which are binding on the EU institutions, including the CJEU. This is clear from the Court's Opinion 2 of 13. Indeed, the EU has agreed to submit disputes to arbitration previously, for example, in the EU-Moldova Association Agreement. However, concerns have been raised about the role of other adjudicative bodies in considering questions of EU law and whether that has the potential to conflict with the CJEU's exclusive competence under the EU treaties to give a final and authoritative interpretation of EU law. Turning to the remedies that might be available, both the EU and the UK have put forward proposals considering the possibility of non-compliance with a withdrawal agreement and steps to mitigate the potential effects. The UK proposal is that a party may take measures to mitigate harm arising from non-compliance in a way that is, first, proportionate to the scale of the breach, second, temporary and only in effect for or related to the period of non-compliance, and third, localised to the extent possible to the area of the future relationship uh, that the dispute concerned. It further notes that such measures could include financial penalties or suspension of specific obligations. Um, and the proportionality and duration of the measures should be subject to challenge by way of arbitration. The July 2018 White Paper notes examples of agreements uh, which, which include financial compensation, such as a number of US trade agreements, and also refers to the provisions of the EEA agreement which allow for suspension in the case of non-compliance. Under the EU's draft withdrawal agreement, published on 15 March 2018, the EU proposes that to the extent that the Joint Committee, which we mentioned earlier, does not refer a dispute to the CJEU, the EU or the UK may suspend aspects of the withdrawal agreement, other than those related to citizens' rights, or any agreement between them proportionate to the gravity of the breach. 
Further, the EU or the UK, as the case may be, shall inform the other party of its intention to suspend and allow the other party within 20 days to remedy the situation. Uh, any suspension shall take effect no earlier than 20 days after its notification to the other party. Well, this idea of a suspension of treaty rights and obligations for material breach is a recognised feature of international law, uh, and indeed is recognised in Article 60 of the Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties. Nevertheless, the suspension of a treaty in this way would of course be a very significant step, uh, which both sides would hope to avoid by virtue of the political dialogue at joint committee level. So, as we have heard, neither side has to date proposed that disputes are resolved by an existing dispute resolution body. State-to-state dispute resolution regularly falls to international courts, including permanent standing bodies such as the ICJ, or private ad hoc tribunals established under a permanent framework. The ICJ is the principal judicial organ of the UN and is composed of 15 judges elected to nine-year terms of office by the United Nations General Assembly and the Security Council. Whilst it's well experienced in resolving high-profile and highly contentious disputes, it's not an option for the withdrawal agreement. The ICJ is a dispute settlement body that deals with interstate disputes only and its jurisdiction does not extend to other subjects of international law. The EU is considered an international organisation for the purposes of the application of the ICJ statute, and since it is not a state, it's not possible for the EU to bring a dispute before the ICJ as a party. It could only act as an equivalent to an amicus curiae, pursuant to Article 43.2 of the rules of the ICJ, expressing its view on subjects that are related to a treaty to which the EU itself is a party. There are other permanent frameworks for dispute resolution which could be appropriate. Um, For example, the Permanent Court of Arbitration in The Hague. Uh, The PCA has 121 contracting parties, including all the EU member states. Uh, The PCA does not determine disputes, but has considerable experience in administering international arbitrations uh, concerning disputes arising out of treaties. Uh, It's been used for resolution of disputes between EU member states in the past, uh, including between the UK and Ireland uh, in the well-known Moxplant case, Uh, between Belgium and the Netherlands, uh, and between the EU and Denmark, acting on behalf of the Faroe Islands, under the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea. The PCA has its own arbitration rules uh, for arbitration involving international organisations and states. And of course there are other possibilities which may need revisiting if the UK and the EU are to avoid an impasse, but none of these are without challenge. For example, using the EFTA court, so-called EFTA docking, The EFTA Court, to give it its full name, is the Court of Justice of the European Free Trade Association States. The EFTA Court has jurisdiction to resolve disputes under the Agreement on the European Economic Area with regard to the EFTA states which are party to that agreement, so at present Iceland, Liechtenstein and Norway. EFTA docking would involve extending the jurisdiction of the EFTA Court, and the EFTA Court's president has spoken in favour of such an option. Clearly there is precedent. The EU has accepted the EFTA Court's jurisdiction in the past, notwithstanding the fact that the EFTA court considered issues of EU law. And there's also been some limited speculation about the establishment of a new EU-UK court. Um, We shouldn't discard any possibilities at this stage, but it is notable that the EU has rejected the proposal of a joint court in the past. Creating standing courts of this kind is expensive, uh, and devising appointment processes and procedures a complex exercise, not least where 28 different states are involved. It's probably fair to say this option remains uh, an outlier for the time being. So, finally, uh, we should not ignore the no-deal scenario uh, and what might happen then. Well, uh, the position is not clear. Um, there's a role for WTO dispute settlement, uh, but this WTO framework covers trade only, so trade disputes could be resolved 
according to those WTO mechanisms. But we can't rule out other disputes between the EU and the UK arising from Brexit, not least concerning the so-called divorce bill, uh, and the WTO would not provide an answer to that. The EU treaties would no longer apply to the UK as of 29 March 2019. Without the agreement of the EU27 and the UK, the CJU would no longer have jurisdiction over the UK after that date, uh, as it would be a third state, although some speculate whether that should be the case with regard to disputes concerning obligations which arose before the UK's exit. And the UK has publicly stated that it will abide by its public international law obligations in future, um, but this could also be tested by individual EU member states and not just by the EU going forward. So summing up, there are some aspects of dispute resolution agreed, in particular with reference to a joint committee process, but the role of the CJEU remains undecided and of course the position in any case is that nothing is agreed until everything is agreed. There are other state-to-state dispute resolution procedures which may be palatable to both sides and discussion may need to resume on the idea of using, for example, international arbitration as a suitable compromise. A no-deal scenario, as we've heard, raises interesting questions as to where disputes between the UK and the EU may be resolved. Well, there's obviously much to digest, and we'll conclude the discussion there. Uh, We hope you've enjoyed the podcast. Uh, As part of our series on Brexit, we'd be keen to receive your feedback. Um, In particular, please do let us know if there are specific topics which you would like to hear us address. Thank you very much for listening. You have been listening to a podcast brought to you by Herbert Smith Freehills. For more episodes, please go to our channel on iTunes or SoundCloud and visit our website herbertsmithfreehills.com for more insights relevant to your business.